Hello and welcome everyone to Conversations in Digital Learning, a podcast produced by the Digital Learning Collaborative, or more commonly known as the DLC. The DLC is a membership group dedicated to exploring, producing, and disseminating data, information, news, and best practices in digital learning. My name is Katherine Kennedy, and I'm your host for today's show. Before we get started, I'd like to share a quick disclaimer. We invite a variety of guests to join our podcasts. Their views are not necessarily representative of the Digital Learning Collaborative or its members. We are excited to have three guests join us today, including John Watson, Dr. Yovani Metcalf, and Jessica Shapoff. John Watson is the founder of the Evergreen Education Group, which serves as the managing organization for the Digital Learning Collaborative. In addition to serving as a U.S. Department of Education peer reviewer on state plans for ESSA, Dr. Yovani Metcalf also served as the Arizona Department of Education's Chief Accountability Officer, overseeing state and federal accountability requirements and school improvement grants. In her current role as Strong Minds Vice President of Education Innovation, she oversees the research and development of Strong Minds Digital Learning Solution. And last but not least, Jessica Shopoff is a former elementary school teacher and an educational data and policy nerd. After almost a decade in the online education space, she has recently transitioned into a new role as a Harvard Strategic Data Project Fellow and School and Market Analyst with the Learn for Life Charter Network, which focuses on helping opportunity youth change their story. Let's go ahead and get started. John, I'll hand the conversation over to you. Thanks, Catherine. The Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, was passed in late 2015, replacing No Child Left Behind as the main federal law governing K-12 education in the United States. ESSA has many elements, as you would expect, of such a wide-ranging law. But one in particular that has received quite a bit of attention is what the law calls evidence of effectiveness. ESSA aims to increase the use of evidence in the tools and the strategies that schools select. But how does it do that? And what are the ramifications for schools and providers? To find out more, let's turn to Jessica and Yovani. Absolutely. Thank you, John. So um, ESSA, you know, of course, came out several years ago, and it's kind of breached full implementation. And as you said, as that happened, we've started to get a lot of questions about, you know, what is evidence-based interventions? What are they? And then, you know, how do we know when we're we're getting a product, what, what those levels mean and, and what are the, the implications for our students. And so um, I wanted to kind of start just talking about those tiers. So while evidence is not completely new to um, the, the ESEA renewal, because No Child Left Behind did mention that there should be research-based, you know, it should be backed in research. Um, this is a step further. And ESSA says there's four levels of evidence. And so every intervention, whether a program or a practice, can fall under one of these um, four levels of evidence. And so uh, the, the strongest level of evidence is called strong evidence, which is very um, reasonable, but it is a requirement that there be an experimental study. So a, a randomized study, a, a true you know, statistical background showing that this improves student outcomes. Um, the next level is moderate. So this is one that also requires a study, but a quasi-experimental. So something like a match study would work. 
Uh, the third is the promising evidence. And this is a, a correlational study. It does have to have some controls for bias and those things. Uh, so those are the kind of top three tiers. And ideally, you know, states are really encouraging schools and districts to, to fall into those tiers when at all possible. Sometimes it is required that they do so under ESSA. And then that fourth level is just there's not enough evidence yet, but we are making an active uh, pursuit of evidence. And so there is some study going on there. So those are those four levels. Uh, and as, as those levels apply to different programs, uh, districts are looking at those. Um, so hopefully that gives a little bit of background that might uh, lead the conversation. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, Yvonne, you've been thinking about these issues as well. Do you have uh, ideas to add around these different tiers or what you're seeing around uh, evidence-based interventions? That was a great summary. Jessica provided a great summary of um, each tier. One of the things that we want to underscore is the idea that a product or that in education we have strong evidence, we have the randomized control experimental study. That's a very, very high bar to meet in any social science. So more than often, you're going to see uh, products or evidence falling into the tier two, tier three categories, and oftentimes now tier four. Um, one of the biggest things that anyone should take away from tier four is that the logic model, the theory of action that will be supported by research should include ongoing efforts to examine the effects of those activities. So it can't be just a check the box activity even for tier four when you have to demonstrate a rationale. It should be a partnership where the results are being continuously examined for effectiveness. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. I, what I'd like to delve into even further is what are the situations where schools and districts are expected to create or be able to show this evidence? Uh, what, are, what are the regulatory mechanisms? What are, what are the teeth, if any, behind this? Uh, at, at, I, I'm, I'm sure it isn't the case that if I'm a teacher and I want to uh, just try a different approach to my lecture or my group activity that there's there's somebody who's asking me to show evidence in that formal way, uh, you know, up through the Federal Department of Education that, that there's evidence that, that uh, that's going to work. Uh, but when does this kick in and how does it kick in? From my vantage point, uh, it really has more to do with your funding stream and whether or not you're receiving um, Title $141.03 dollars designed to help improve student achievement or improve student outcomes in any of the th in any of the ways that ESSA allows for those funds to be used. So if you're a teacher who's just wanting to try out this new intervention or program that is completely allowable, it's all based on the local context, but ESSA really uh, applies to or the requirement for evidence-based interventions really applies to any SEA or state-funded activities that are being used, that are funded by specific um, Title I monies. However, that said, schools can look at this as a way to ensure that their interventions are in alignment with their results, with the desired results that they're wanting to see. So 
it codifies what is a best practice, what is typically been a best practice, which is to ensure that you're selecting programs and interventions that are proven or have a higher likelihood of being successful when implemented within your setting. And this is Jessica. I was I was going to add um, one thing. I think that's that is exactly right. And I think that the that most of it is tied to funding, and that's typically what we've seen with ESEA is that you know most of the teeth are really in the funding. Um, I would say there's one there's another required use, which I think is is interesting to note that for schools who fall into uh, the bottom tiers of performance on accountability under ESSA. So if they're in that comprehensive or targeted support levels and they're identified as such, they do have to use in their school improvement plans with typically your state department, they do have to use uh, evidence. And so I think the, the connection there between, you know, we have a school that we need to intervene in and let's look at all these evidence-based practices um, is is made there, and so I think that's another important required use of of the evidence based interventions. It's really helpful. Thanks to both of you for that. I I, I want to go even a little bit further into this uh, into this specific topic. Just you you uh, your point about school improvement that makes a ton of sense, and and those are clearly major efforts, you know, if you're talking about something like a school turnaround, that's big, that's comprehensive, that totally makes intuitive sense about how something like that, where there would be the mechanisms by which evidence would be shown. I'm still trying to get my head around where the regulations start to kick in. And you both talked about how it's tied to, how these are tied to funding in a lot of situations. Talk to me about, so, so let's say you are in a situation where the district is using uh, some of that Title I money. And so under ESSA, the district should have that evidence of success at, at one of those tiers. Is there a reporting requirement? Is, there, is it something that they're supposed to have some sort of track of? Uh, is it something where they might be asked down the road? And, and, and I'll give you some of, some of the reason that I, that I think this is such an interesting topic is I think about the way that state content standards have been applied to digital content. And what I mean by that, and, and, and I'm thinking starting with state content standards, and then you have Common Core, and now you have various iterations of states using Common Core or adjusting Common Core with some of their own iterations or going back to their own state standards. And it seems to me like there's a lot of cases where a district will say, you've got to be uh, aligned with state standards, you've got to be aligned with Common Core, but it very much becomes a check the box for the provider. It feels, and I may be exaggerating here, but I think only a little bit, somebody at the district says, are you Common Core aligned? Somebody at the provider says, yes, end of story. Nothing ever is checked around any of that. Is that where we are with evidence of effectiveness as well, or, or uh, are, there more, uh, are there more teeth, or uh, would you argue that my characterization of those content standards is wrong? Hi, this is Giovanni. I would not argue that your assessment of how content standards are implemented can be extremely loose, but that is 
one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you can have a very, very prescriptive program, a very prescriptive process to get interventions approved. It can be state-run, where the state vets series of uh, interventions for effectiveness and allows LEAs to choose from a menu of state-approved programs. Then on the other side Mm -hmm. of the spectrum, you can have the LEA who takes over that control and the LEA might provide a specific list of interventions from which a school can choose, or it might develop a process for approving a school's decision to use a specific intervention, or it might just allow local, true local control and engage in a process where they're constantly evaluating whether the school's programs are being effective. But it can. There's a wide spectrum, and it'll really depend on the context of the LE of the local school district or LEA, the context, and as well as the context of the state and how much how much capacity they have to provide technical assistance, infrastructure capacity to be that type to play that type of role. Yuvani, are you seeing? Uh, are there any specific states where you see more? activity at the state level in, in terms of some of what you're talking about. And, and, and another question tied to that is this, this sounds as you're, as you're talking about it, sounds a little bit like the, uh, like the state approved textbook lists, that sort of thing. Is that, is that the sort of approach that we're talking about, but, but now around effectiveness as opposed to uh, a quality assurance type role up front? Yes. And there are there are different funding streams even within Title I school improvement activities. A state can hold on to them and administer the funds on their own. The state can uh, disperse to LEAs and have and um, push that local compliance piece down. Um, a state I can think of, and Jessica might have other examples, is Louisiana and their implementation of and their evaluation of different curricular choices. And depending on where a school or district is performing, the level of autonomy is going to change. And as a district or school requires more improvement, the ability to choose from one set of providers is going to be very different versus an LEA who is considered to be performing to satisfaction and meeting state's expectations. Yes, Giovanni is spot on. And funnily enough, I was going to name Louisiana too. I think that's a place where we're seeing a, a state say, okay, here's what evidence is and here's the, the tiers. And then they've kind of created their own kind of system for, you know, if you are an A school or an A district, you can, you know, have this more control over what you choose. It doesn't have to meet these certain levels of evidence. And then there's, you know, your school improvement schools where they're saying every intervention that you're proposing to address your identified needs needs to meet these levels of evidence. So I I think that in line with ESSA, which the focus of that was a much more focus on state control and local control, I think that this very much is, is what we see lining up with that kind of approach is, you know, we're going to give control to the states and the states can kind of decide what to do with that. And sometimes that does become a check the box, unfortunately, um, as you mentioned, John. But I think that we are seeing some states that are really taking that and saying, let's let's utilize the federal framework and then let's create our own framework to um, implement and track that. Jessica, do you think that part of the 
goals of the evident framework under ESSA is to spur districts to think about evidence of success quite apart from whether there's regulatory piece or not. Part of the reason I'm asking this is is when when I hear about and, and read about the evidence provisions under ESSA, it's fairly common to hear reference to the What Works Clearinghouse. And, and maybe you're going to disagree with with uh, my take on what works on the What Works Clearinghouse, but it feels to me like the What Works Clearinghouse was a really good idea that was not very much used in practice. And, and what I mean by that is, for instance. If when I've been out talking with people from districts and, and I might say, hey, why did you choose this particular product, service, and structural strategy, et cetera? I have not very often heard the beginning of that answer being, well, we looked at the What Works Clearinghouse to see what we should look for. So it feels to me like, and, and to build on that, actually, it's, it feels much more likely that, uh, let's say, a, a district leader would say, we did an RFP. We looked at different options. We talked to our teachers and our uh, our instructional designers, our student support people, et cetera. We looked at um, what other uh, districts that we compare ourselves to are using. You know that that sort of thing. So, and and there's certainly value in those approaches. I would also argue that that is in terms of compelling evidence a step below what. Uh, what Works was trying to accomplish, and maybe what ESSA is trying to accomplish now as well. So I'm curious if you see it that way as well. Is part of this an attempt to uh, spur some different behaviors among district buyers? I absolutely do think that that's part of it, and that's why it's not maybe necessarily a you need to report up to the U.S. Department of Ed this level of evidence for all these interventions. I really think it is a trying to change the mindset. You know, if you think back to when No Child Left Behind was passed, uh, the number of digital tools and products and curriculum options was a lot less than what schools are bombarded with today. And so I think that there's an added level of choosiness that a district can have. And so it's trying to spur them as they make these decisions or as a state makes a decision to use Title I funds to support some kind of statewide effort. We need to think about the evidence and not, not the No Child Left Behind research-based. You can say that a lot of programs are research-based. They're based on the fact that, you know, let's say for a reading program, I was a first grade teacher, this reading program is based on, you know, these five different things that students, students need to do to learn to read, and we have phonemic awareness and all of these things. That's based on research. Now, does that have evidence that that particular program works? Maybe not. So I think it adds a level of thoughtfulness that, that district leaders need to take when they're making these decisions. And so I think that, you know, as we see them kind of have the ability to do that, I hope that we'll see them change their behavior and the questions they ask to these people that come in and, and sell these products and, and require a little bit more than is it based on research? Because I, you know, there's not a lot of people out there building stuff that's not based on research, but let's take it a, a level further. And do we have evidence that this particular intervention supports student outcomes? And so it's more outcome-based as opposed to the inputs and, and how it's created. I'm, both of you are uh, now working with providers, and, and both of you have lots of experience in, in a lot of different areas of education. I'm curious if you, and I'm not asking you to necessarily comment on 
the companies you're with now, but do you have a sense that these evidence requirements are changing the way that providers think about what they're creating or the the effort they're putting into showing a research base of success? Do you feel like that's happening right now? Do you think it should happen more or, or do you feel like some of the providers aren't taking this too seriously and, and they feel like it's not a major decision factor for most districts? John, from my vantage point, I feel like providers absolutely should be taking this seriously and it is changing the conversation. Jessica had, had mentioned the increased dialogue around evidence and around research and schools and districts looking out for those and having that be part of their decision-making process. We're hearing that from schools and districts as we're talking to them about what types of products they need, what types of products they want. It really has changed the way, and for the better, it really has changed the way we look at these types of partnerships where we're trying to gather evidence. Throughout this discussion, we talk about evidence of effectiveness, likelihood to improve student outcomes. One of the big things that districts should be asking or schools should be asking is, does that evidence apply or can that evidence be generalizable to my setting or my population? What is what worked for one setting, what worked in one implementation doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate. Um, and so as schools and districts are asking for that for that evidence, it becomes especially important for companies like StrongMind, for other digital curriculum providers, for other digital providers to have close partnerships and implementation relationships with with schools and districts to be able to gather that body and to say this particular implementation applies to yours and provide that very generalizable, very relevant evidence to help schools and districts inform their decisions. That's spot on, Yovani. And one thing I would add that I really, I know you mentioned the the What Works Clearinghouse, John. Uh, there's another site called Evidence for ESSA, and I found it it really helpful because it, it actually, you know, has all of the kind of background on, on, you know, what the evidence levels are and all of that for people who are, are looking. But you can actually search for different reading and math programs that fall into that strong evidence or, you know, which we, as Giovanni mentioned, is very few because that's a hard level to meet. Um, but then all the way down to promising and you can select, but not only that, you can actually select down to specific subgroups of students that it was tested on. So is this best for English learners or is this a whole class type program? Is this, you know, one where I would put on my struggling readers or struggling students in, in math? Where, where does this fall as far as what the assessment of evidence has, has been based on? So that's really helpful and, and a good point by Giovanni about is this translatable, this research and evidence translatable to what I'm looking for? And so I, I do think districts are starting to ask that, and I'm very encouraged by that. Thank you, Jessica. This brings us close to the end of the time that we had planned. Jessica, Giovanni, is there anything else that I haven't asked or that you would like to add in closing? Not that I can think of, John. I think we covered it. I think I, I, I believe that we are headed in the right direction. I think ESSA outlined some good 
strategies for districts to really be thinking about in states and schools. And so I hope that as these questions and discussions become more common, that we will start to see even schools that, that say, I'm not even going to settle for a tier three program because there's something that's tier one or two that is even better. So I think that that we're heading in the right direction and I, I'm encouraged. It's not an easy, quick solution, but hopefully we're, we're going there. Well, thank you so much, Jessica and Yovani. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to share this with me and with Catherine and with the rest of the Digital Learning Collaborative audience. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, John. From all of us at the Digital Learning Collaborative and Evergreen Education Group, thank you so much for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at the DLC EDU and at the DLC's Digital Learning Annual Conference. Learn more about the DLC at digitallearningcolab.com. We'll be back soon with another episode of Conversations in Digital Learning. Enjoy your day.